Hey everyone, welcome back to Ordinary Equality. As we mentioned last week, we're bringing you a special episode today featuring real abortion stories, including from some listeners like you. I think it's really important to tell just plain, true stories about abortion so that people can hear them and understand all the different range of emotions that come along uh, with this type of procedure and understand that everything that they're feeling and going through is valid and really connecting this amorphous, abstract idea of abortion to actual people. And the first abortion story that I heard from someone that I loved, you also heard in the first episode of this season. It was from my sister. So it wasn't until I reconnected with my sister that I ever actually talked to someone who had had an abortion. And I think it's really important for people to hear those stories. I agree. I feel like when we share stories, we build empathy and we humanize each other and ourselves. And the stigma smashing comes from seeing that connection, that human spark that each of us have uh, when we see other people exploring life and all of its complexity and all of its uniqueness, um, the triumphs and the challenges. So I find storytelling unifying. And I think that that's why it's so powerful, the ability for the heart and mind to shift because we see another human going through their experience and connect with it through empathy, through recognition, through acknowledgement that we're all on our paths. We're all souls on a path. We talked to my friend, Dr. Leah Torres, who's an OBGYN, about the different kinds of abortion, medication and surgical, and how they really work. Uh, Plus, she shared a story about one of her patients that shows how stigma can be really, truly damaging. We also have an abortion story from Gloria Allred, the incredible human rights lawyer. So we'll start with Dr. Torres, and then we'll dive into some abortion stories we received from guests and listeners. Well, my name is Dr. Leah Torres. I'm an OBGYN and I am currently at West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, expanding their services beyond abortion care. With a medication abortion, which is what we refer to it now versus a surgical abortion, medication abortion we do now since we have studied it up to 10 weeks. And that is primarily because we understand how the drug mifepristone, that's the first medication in a medication abortion, we know very well the dosage of that and the mechanisms there and what to expect there. The second medication is mesoprostol. That is the medication used to help the uterus expel the contents of the the pregnancy. And that, with a farther along pregnancy, you're going to have heavier bleeding that may be more difficult to control. So we may come to a day where we're doing medication abortions beyond 10 weeks, but at this point, what we've studied so far is the amount of bleeding and passing of tissue is tolerable to the patient to do at home. It doesn't increase the danger of having to go to uh, an emergency room or anything for excessive bleeding, bleeding that won't stop. So we have to sort of keep these factors in mind because as a pregnancy advances, all of these risks of bleeding, infection, et cetera, et cetera, increase. And that is why some of these laws that prevent people from obtaining an abortion in a timely manner are so 
detrimental and actually increase risks of the abortion procedure because they are not allowing for a timely intervention. Uh, this pill, mifepristone, as I mentioned before, is safer than Tylenol, it is safer than aspirin, it is safer than many medications that you can buy at a CVS. Once the patient swallows the pill, that first pill, mifepristone, RU486, is a progesterone receptor blocker. So what does that mean? That means the hormone progesterone, which is the primary hormone of pregnancy, is blocked from working. The receptors for it are blocked, and so progesterone can't do its job of maintaining the pregnancy. So that means the pregnancy stops developing. But that's not enough, because now you just have a pregnancy that's uh, what we call necrosing or just not developing, and, and the tissue is dying, essentially, inside the uterus. So the uterus needs to push that out. That's where the mesoprostol comes in. The mesoprostol is uh, prostaglandin medication that helps the cervix soften and open so that the uterine muscles pushing can push the remnants of the pregnancy out of the body. And that's how that works. It's a, it's, a, it's a miscarriage that is started medically by taking a medicine, basically. So the DNC, dilation and curatage, aspiration abortion, basically is the surgical procedure in the first to second, early second trimester, where the cervix is gently opened or dilated, and the insertion of what is called a cannula or a suction curette is gently uh, advanced to the end of the uterus, which is called the fundus, and suction is applied so that the contents of the uterus are evacuated. The surgical abortion is limited mostly by the laws of the state. So the DNC that I described earlier with the cannula is up to essentially 14 weeks, just because that is the instrumentation that we use. Beyond that, we get into what is called a dilation and evacuation procedure where a cannula is used, but further dilating of the cervix is required. So there might be a multi-step process in order to open the cervix enough so that we can use instrumentation to remove the what we call products of conception or fetal parts and placenta in order to execute the full abortion procedure, depending on how far along they are. The story that really sticks out where one patient, she came in, she was eager to, you know, have her procedure and have it complete. I sometimes have to slow the patient down so that I feel comfortable knowing that they've thought this through and they've come to the decision that's best for them. And, and I feel that there's been an adequate decision-making process, you know, there's my comfort too, actually. So, you know, we talked a little bit after the procedure, I was done. I said, we're finished. Everything went, you know, well, there were no problems. She started crying and I panicked, not in a panic panic, but, you know, in my, in my mind, in my emotional place, I kind of panicked and I put her legs down, covered her up. And I, you know, went to her head and I said, what, you know, what's wrong? Talk to me. What's, what's going on? Because in my mind, I had just performed an abortion on somebody who didn't actually want one, and that horrifies me. That is not something I want to do. I want to make sure that everyone who is coming to me for care is receiving the care that they want. So she's like, no, 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 everything, you know, I'm, I'm fine. It's not you. It's just those protesters outside. They don't know what this means. They don't know what I've had to go through. It's not fair that they get to shame me and make me feel bad for doing what's best for me. And that was hard hitting because it's true. 
um, you have a lot of people judging my patients for doing what is best for them and their families, which is in my mind, not pro-family. It is not pro-family to yell shameful things, to try and belittle people seeking health care. That is not a pro-family thing to do. Yeah, I'm attorney Gloria Allred. I'm a partner in the Los Angeles uh, law firm of Allred, Morocco, and Goldberg. We also have an office in New York. We are the leading women's rights law firm in the United States, and we have been the leading women's rights law firm for 45 years. I uh, have had a personal experience with abortion uh, when it was pre-Roe v. Wade. Of course, Roe v. Wade is the United States Supreme Court decision in 1973, in which the court decided that a woman has a constitutional right to choose abortion, and essentially that a, that no state could criminalize abortion. There were many states who did make it a crime prior to Roe v. Wade, prior to 1973, made it a crime for healthcare providers like doctors to provide abortions. Um, it was not a crime for a woman to have one because I think a lot of the anti-choice people knew that that would be unpopular. So they made it a crime for doctors to give it. But that meant that women like me had to seek back alley abortions. And many women died or were maimed by back alley abortions given by people who were not licensed healthcare providers, but were just doing it for the money. And that became a ma- major risk to women's lives and to their health. So in my Netflix documentary, Seeing All Red, I talk about the fact that I was raped in Mexico at gunpoint, that I became pregnant, that I had to have an abortion, and that I had to then have an illegal abortion, which I did, and I almost died, and I was taken to the hospital and with 106-degree fever and packed in ice. And uh, the nurse said to me, I hope this teaches you a lesson. And of course, I I didn't really know what she meant by that. But later I understood it and I realized that I had learned a lesson, but it was not the lesson she thought I should learn. It was that abortion should be safe, legal, affordable and available. And that Roe v. Wade was very important. Kate and Jamia. My name is Erin, and I'm calling because you asked for abortion stories. So I am a former Mormon as well, and I've actually had four abortions, which is something that I never used to talk about to anyone. I really thought I was the only person who was like, how much of a mess, (laughs) Um, until I started talking about them, and then I realized that there were so many other people who have had multiple abortions, and that it was actually really pretty common. So, yeah, it really changed my life a lot to, like, start being more open about them. Um, The first time I started talking about them, I just felt like I was going to pass out and, like, die. Um, I could barely get the words out, and now it feels a lot more normal to me. And the more I talk about it, the more other people are like, yeah, the same thing. Or, um, you know, I've had more than one abortion, too. Um, So, yeah, there were, like, four abortions, too. There are a lot of us out here, so... Um, yeah. All right. Thanks for the podcast. Bye. 
My name is Erin, uh, and I'm an abortion storyteller for We Testify. So I'm non-binary, uh, and I use they, them pronouns. So I don't really identify one way or the other as male, as a man or a woman, but somewhere kind of in the middle of that spectrum. So I found out that I was pregnant uh, when I was 19. I was a sophomore in college, and I found out because my roommate and I, who had lived uh, in close proximity to each other the previous few semesters, uh, our menstrual cycles had started to synchronize. Um, So when she asked me one day for a tampon, it just kind of popped into my head, wow, I haven't haven't had a period in a minute. Um, I should probably figure this out. Um, So I took a pregnancy test. Um, and it came back positive. And at first I was like, well, I've only had sex like maybe less than 10 times. Like there's no way, there's absolutely no way that this is happening. Um, so I'm definitely going to take another one. I took another one and another one. Um, and they kept coming back positive. And I was like, there's, there's absolutely no way. So I'm sitting there, I'm crying in the, uh, in the bathroom stall of my dormitory at the time. Um, just thinking to myself, one, I can't let my parents find out that I just went off to college and this happened. And then two, I didn't know what to do. Um, I was from a pretty conservative small town and we didn't really talk about safe sex, let alone anything regarding what happens when a person becomes pregnant or what your options are regarding um, if you want to terminate that pregnancy or carry it to term. So I didn't know what my options were. And I was just, I knew though that I didn't feel like this was the the time in my life to have a child. Um, I know there's some phenomenal parents out there who were the age that I was when I became pregnant, but I knew for me that this just wasn't something that I wanted. Um, so it was never a doubt in my mind of whether or not I was going to have an abortion or if I was going to carry to term. This was right around the time when I started like questioning my gender identity. Um, this was right around the time when I was questioning my sexuality as well. Um, I was just kind of finding myself at this period of my life. And I knew that this just wasn't the right decision for me to have a child right now. So it was never a doubt in my mind of whether or not I was going to get an abortion. Um, but I had no idea how to do that. And the way that abortions were talked about in my sexual education courses in high school, um, there was a lot of stigma behind it and there was a lot of negativity behind it, but there was no information as far as how to go about procuring these services or what an abortion actually entailed or what it was like. And that it, you know, it's a very safe medical procedure. So not knowing these things led me to kind of take my abortion journey and my self-managed abortion into my own hands. Um, I went on places like Reddit. I went on various different places on the internet and forums to kind of find what works for people and different at-home remedies for, you know, starting the process and making sure that I could do that as safely as possible. Um, Cause I didn't know that there were mutual aid funds. I didn't know that there were, there were options for me. And I didn't want to tell my parents at the time, because again, of the stigma behind abortion care. And I, I didn't know where to turn. So um, I chose to do that. I took a few herbal me- remedies and a few medicinal, um, traditional medications. And then the cramping started. I started to cramp for probably about three or four days. Unfortunately, this was on a long weekend where uh, my roommate was out of town. So I had the whole dorm room (laughs) to myself, kind of made myself a little like nest of pillows and blankets and junk food just to try to get through it. But it was it was not a good time. And that was just because I did not have a support system. 
it honestly, it felt like a pretty bad period. But the the issue was that I just didn't have anybody to talk to again, because of the stigma behind it. Um, so that was the most difficult part of the the actual abortion itself. But I remember waking up and just kind of on the third or fourth day, kind of recognizing that it was slowing down and that it was almost over. Um, and that it was done. And it was just the the biggest like, elation and feeling of relief that I didn't have to to deal with this anymore. And I was scared at first that um, that it didn't work because in all honesty, like I, I didn't know what to do if it didn't. So luckily it did. <laughs> um, it was just a feeling like I I could get back to my life. It was an experience that definitely changed the course of my life because through that experience, I realized that even with my background is a, is a middle-class, you know, uh, white person in a very like in, in educational setting, um, that has educational privilege where I'm going to this college campus. They didn't have resources for me. I didn't have my own resources. And so it, even in, in situations that are different than mine, I recognize that there are so many more barriers. I know that if I, if I would have reached out, if I probably would have told one of my professors, if I probably would have told a trusted adult on campus, they would have been able to take me somewhere in order to have either a medication or a surgical abortion, depending on how far I was along when I told them, (laughs) but I chose not to do that. And so I think one, a lot of the times, some barriers and personal barriers, especially in my circumstances, came from the stigma regarding abortion care and me making that decision for myself. But all in all, uh, I have no regrets. Having an abortion was honestly one of the best decisions that I ever made for myself um, because it was something that I did for me. So honestly, that's, that's my biggest takeaway. Thanks for listening, and thank you to those who entrusted us with your stories. Silence in itself is stigmatizing. And what I think is important about the storytelling, whether it happens to ourselves, if we're speaking to ourselves, saying our story out loud to ourselves, or saying them to another person, or sharing them with our communities, is that with every release of our stories, a bit of ourselves becomes more free. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the part of the human experience, but uh, I think with abortion storytelling, I've just learned so much from listening. I've learned so much for bearing witness and and hearing others and become a bit more brave every day when I hear others speaking their truth and talking about their journeys. So it's been a real honor to hear the stories that we've heard and to hear the paths that everyone has walked. And I hope that for those who are listening who might be considering sharing their stories, that perhaps more stories will be unearthed as a result of this conversation. And I think that's the point. You know, the more stories we share, the more folks realize how common this procedure is and how no one, literally no one in our country is untouched by abortion access and doesn't know someone who has terminated a pregnancy. That's impossible because the procedure is so, so common. That's why when anyone tells their story, no matter how they feel, no matter what happened, it helps break down the the stigma and it also helps people understand, everyone understand how common and, you know, everyday abortion really is. Abortion is normal, everyone. (laughs) And next week on Ordinary Equality, we'll be back to our usual lineup. 
Tune in for the story of the case that changed everything. Roe vs. Wade. See you then.